from Matthew, chapter 5, verses 1 through 11. When Jesus saw the crowds, he went up the mountain, and after he sat down, his disciples came to him, and he began to speak and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for the sake of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people revile you and persecute, persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For in the same way, they persecuted the prophets who were before you. May the living word of God speak to us through, through these ancient words of scripture. Today marks the last week in our sermon series entitled Connected, which examines how we might go about fostering and cultivating authentic relationships in the midst of our busy, chaotic lives, and how such relationships may serve as a basis for how we live our lives together. The first week, we examined our relationship with God uh, through the lens of the story of the prodigal son. And the second week, we took a look at our relationship with ourselves, examining the um, idea of negative internal self-talk. And the third week, we examined our relationship with our families, both biological and chosen, and the generational cycles that can result from our familial relationships. And then last week, we examined our lives together as church through the lens of our furriest friends in the blessing of the animals. And now this week, we are examining the ways in which we might foster relationships with the wider world as a whole. Now, as I began thinking about the topic this week, something that immediately occurred to me was that throughout this sermon series, all of these other entities that we're speaking of in terms of our relationship with are people or groups of people that are known to us. And as I said, we began with our relationship with God, whom we know as the creator that loves us and wants nothing more than to be in relationship with us and feel the reciprocity of our love. And then we talked about our relationship with ourselves, who we know by definition, hopefully. Um, and next, our families, who we know so much about, perhaps more than anyone else. And our church family, who we worship alongside and grow with in faith and in service, and we also know. The world, however, is vast. And unlike these other entities whom we are in relationship with, can seem daunting and scary. And yet the world is something that we too can get to know. Growing up, travel wasn't really something that was uh, high up on the to-do list for my family. They, you know, we were homebodies, we preferred to stay at home most of the time. Um, it's just how we were. And so when I got to college in my college honors program and I had to fulfill a study abroad requirement, um, 
I had never phone, flown on a plane before domestically, let alone internationally, and yet I found myself having to go to Spain for an entire month, take classes abroad, um, and so as a 21-year-old, I embarked on this intercontinental flight uh, to a country that I didn't know, surrounded by a language that I didn't know. Well, well, I mean, I, I was a Spanish minor, but you know, I wasn't fluent, so um, that did present a bit of a difficulty. Um, and customs that were not my own, and staying with a family that was not my own. And I ended up staying with a woman named Olga and her son Danny, um, who were very kind in opening up their home to me and being willing to orient me to what life was like for them in their country. I found it to be a wonderful, laid-back culture, which made for an interesting contrast with the two very demanding classes that I was taking at the same time um, that were taught entirely in Spanish and were condensed to the span of a single month. Um, and as I'd said, I was minoring in Spanish, but I'd never had the experience of total immersion, and so that added a layer of complexity to the experience, to say the least. <laughs> My time in Spain was characterized by new adventures, trying new foods, making new friends, and of course, getting lost several times, if you know me. Um, once ending up stranded alone in a Barcelona train station for an entire day <laughs> until I could finally board and come back to my host family. But I digress. <laughs> what I hadn't necessarily counted on was how life-changing the experience would prove to be in terms of opening up my perspective on the world. Helping to shift my small town perspective to a much more globally aware one and I became perhaps more worldly in my view. Now this word worldly is one that many within the church or in some churches um, seem to view through a negative lens, right? We, we sometimes hear this dichotomy between the spiritual or the heavenly and the worldly and the physical, um, and that this, this sort of um, dichotomy where the spiritual is superior to the physical, right? Um, but I think that this perspective can be overly dismissive and even harmful. Um, there's an advantage to being worldly, to being willing to know about others in the world, to learn from how they live. And other cultures are so rich with opportunities to teach us things. And there's much to be gained from a more global perspective of creation a willingness to expand our purview beyond our own backyards and into the, va the vast expanse of the earth. I think that this is lended credence when we consider that scripture, the very text around which we base our faith and which we read from every week, is set in an entirely different culture and time period. And Jesus, the central figure of our faith, of course, is from this entirely different culture and time period. It was embodied as a Palestinian Jewish man 2,000 years ago, and he had much to say about how the world ought to be structured and what role we as Christians should have within it. And the focus text this morning, Matthew 5, um, is often referred to as the Beatitudes, 
But the phrase Beatitudes actually refers to a long-standing linguistic construction of blessings that exist throughout ancient literature from a variety of cultures. Um, the New Testament itself makes 37 different Beatitudinal statements, and, but some are parallels between the different Gospels, and some are direct citations, so really there's like 28 unique ones, and 17 of them are attributed to Jesus. But this structure would have been familiar, and it would have been known to the people of this culture. And the Beatitudes that we're speaking about today serve as the opening for Jesus' famous Sermon on the Mount, one of the most recognized and widely quoted oratories of Jesus. The scholar Stanley P. Saunders writes, the Sermon on the Mount describes an alternative world already being realized in the midst of this world, where God's power and presence define human perceptions and relationships. The Beatitudes do not describe individual virtues, but practices nurtured and sustained in the community of Jesus' disciples. Now, imagine living in a way, as Saunders says, where God's power and presence defines the way that we interact with one another. How much more charitable would we be in the way that we perceive each other's expectations and intentions? Would we not be moved to be more giving, kinder, gentler, more forgiving? I think so, because viewing one another as God's beloved and keeping that perception at the forefront of all that we do serves as a powerful paradigm to work within, and it has the potential to temper the way in which we experience each other and experience the world. Now, the Beatitudes are given in a very specific, intentional way. And as I stated before, this blessing structure was used in writing and discourse in ancient cultures and would, have been, would not have been unfamiliar to Jesus' audience. However, the way that they are stated almost subverts expectations here. They contrast things that are seemingly opposite, bringing them into reconciliation together that, in, a, in a way that's truly beautiful. For example, blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. And because generally speaking, when we think of the meek, we don't necessarily expect them to be the ones to inherit the earth, right? But this idea is representative of the kind of earth that God desires, that we are in the midst of bringing about. And the structure of these statements makes it clear that it is indeed our responsibility to bring this world about. Uh, God places the onus on us to carry out this new world order. It doesn't say, for example, that those who mourn will be comforted by God. Rather, it is our responsibility to comfort one another. God is not necessarily taking the onus upon God's self to perform these transformative actions. We as individuals need to take those steps of transformation. There's something so beautiful about that, I think. The earth is like a tapestry, rich and colorful in its diversity, and it's our responsibility to weave it together. And this should be the lens through which we undertake every interaction we have with everyone, be they friend or stranger, our next door neighbor, or someone from across the globe. 
my best friends are in town visiting me this week, and I won't ask them to stand or raise their hand or anything, but they are here this morning. <laughs> and I discussed the sermon topic with them, as I often do, because I find it helpful um, to get a differing perspective on things, um, because they often point out things that I might not notice, but that is perhaps a glaringly obvious facet of what I'm studying. Um, and as I expected in this discussion, they blessed me with a fresh angle that I hadn't considered. Um, but they immediately, upon discussing this idea of cultivating intentional relationships with the world, they brought up the idea of caring for the earth, how we are not only in relationship with others in the world, but the world itself, and that we ought to honor and care for the earth, both as an end within itself, but also in recognition that it is a shared space with one another. We share the space with the entirety of humanity and all of God's creatures. And that got me thinking about how important it really is to steward the entirety of creation, to be environmentally conscious, to be loving neighbors, caring neighbors in all facets of life that we can do that in. And this ties directly into the sort of vision that we aim towards bringing about a world restored and in harmony. In the rest of the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus goes on to illustrate that we are to be a witness to the world that we are to be like purifying salt or a city on the hill, which all can see. And, but I think there is something important about the way that this sermon is structured. We aren't first called to be a witness to the world, but first we hear the Beatitudes, describing this almost cataclysmic restructuring of the way that our world ought to change, with peace being extended to the peaceful in the pursuit of justice and good. And I think that this is tantamount to Jesus giving this phrase, these beatitudic statements, primacy in this reordering, that this lens of goodness and kindness should be the way that we go about restructuring the earth. It should be the basis and the modus operandi for how we witness to the world. We shouldn't seek to tell others about Christ because we want them to become like us, but with a posture of peace and love and a willingness to learn from one another. There's so much that we can learn from those who differ from us. And we can gain so much from recognizing that all others whom we encounter were created and loved by God. Our scripture this morning ends with this seemingly strange line from Jesus about how we will be reviled and persecuted on his behalf. Um, and it seems almost discordant with the rest of the passages this morning. It, it doesn't seem like it quite fits, right? But what it seems to suggest, I think, is this. When we live life according to these, be these beatitudinal principles, putting primacy on peace and love and kindness and justice, there will always be people who aren't on board with that who seek to serve their own self-interests. And so we will naturally face opposition as the new world that we're trying to bring about runs counter to the way that the world currently is structured with its injustices and hatred and prejudices of all kinds. 
And so we face this opposition. But if we persevere, if we seek to extend a kind hand or word to others, even in the face of harsh condemnation, of being mocked, of being looked down upon, then we are doing God's work. And that is what following Jesus is all about. The willingness to walk the walk, even when things are difficult, even when the choices we have to make or the things that we have to stand for aren't popular, we're never promised that this journey will be an easy one, but we are promised that it will be worthwhile. And if we do help to bring around, to bring about a world of kindness, of peace, and of beauty, then we will be blessed beyond measure. Amen.